It had taken Enron 16 years to go from about 10 billion of assets to 65 billion of assets. It took them 24 days to go bankrupt. Why do people lie, cheat, and steal in business? It's short-sighted and easy. Oftentimes there is groupthink, peer pressure, you might say, and it's all about getting the next promotion or the next sale without really thinking through the consequences of what pathway to get that next step in business. You could imagine if you work in an office where the culture is to cut corners and bend rules, it doesn't mean that it's ethical. It takes a courageous person to stand up to that. This is The Language of Business, a podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work from people who've been there and done that. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Gregory Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at lying and cheating in the business world with a man who lived through the downfall of Enron and a college professor who teaches ethics. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Remember that little company named Enron? Its lessons on ethics are still reverberating through the business world today. We're on location at the Boston University Questrom School of Business with John Lodra, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you, Greg. What was it like actually working for Enron? It was actually quite a different experience than the headline news kind of documentary stories that were made of the whole affair. You know, I will say, and I agree to this day, that there were a tremendous amount of very talented, good people at Enron. And you know, I think it's a classic example of just a few bad actors can really spoil the waters for not only outsiders, but insiders as well. There were folks within that company that believed in the company. It was, there were divisions of the company that were legitimately adding value and had a place for being in the business world. And it all obviously came crumbling down as a result of some pretty poor judgment at the, uh, the C-suite offices of that company. Did one day you receive an email that the company's closed down, you're out of a job? No, it was a bit more um, sequential than that. You know, certainly the stock price uh, started to portend that something right. wasn't quite right. Enron was a big company. I've rarely come across a, a collection of so many good, talented people all in one spot, still believing in the company right up to the very, very end. Investors started asking some more challenging questions of Enron's financials. And as that started to snowball, kind of a light switch went off as counterparties Houston, Enron, we have a problem. Yeah, right. it was kind of an overnight thing in that sense, in that once counterparties um, decided to not trade with Enron, Enron was largely a trading company everything from energy commodities sure. to other esoteric things like internet bandwidth. Once the trading counterparties started to get cold feet, it was kind of like the modern day equivalent of a run on a bank. Sure. Fast forward to today, you're running your own shop. How do you put those lessons into everyday business life? Everyday business, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, and I, I like to kind of relate what I tell my children. I've got two college-aged children who are kind of looking out at the world, and I keep telling them that you've got to do the little things right. If you cut corners and cheat or lie on, on the little things, when the decisions come about that really matter, you're going to be trained and practiced into sure. not making good decisions. Yeah. In the businesses I run, I, I just try to every day act and speak in truth. You know, I think that's one of the most fundamental elements of freedom and personal choice and freedom is to, to be given the truth from which you can make the decisions that either as a customer or, right. or a seller. You know, without truth, we don't have much, much of anything. From your business hat as opposed to an academic or a legal hat, mm -hmm. why do you think people lie, steal, and cheat in business? It's short-sighted and easy. Oftentimes there is groupthink, peer pressure, you might say. And, you know, courage is something that oftentimes is in scarce commodity because of oftentimes the short-sighted nature of business. You know, it's all about getting the next promotion or the next sale without really thinking through the consequences of what 
pathway to get that next step in business, whether it's self-interest or, or, or what. Have you ever seen somebody permanently get away with it? No, I don't, I don't believe so. I think in one way or the other, it, it comes back to roost. I do believe in <laughs> psychic income yes. and, and karma. karma yeah, exactly, absolutely. right. Certainly, uh, you see the stories of folks who die with billions of dollars and look back on their life and wish they had done things differently. So I think ultimately it becomes one of one's own introspection of their legacy. You can't do everything. You can't please everyone. Sometimes you're not the best fit for what a, a client or customer needs. And you're doing yourself and certainly that customer a favor by concluding that and being open about that. So firing is sometimes a benevolent, sure. benevolent act. But you know, anytime I see something that is just not in line with what you know, we believe is from a business perspective, an ethical decision, there's a fine line between what is universally accepted as sure. business ethics and, and not. You mentioned when you were working with Enron that a lot of the headlines were simply misguided. What percentage when it comes to lying, stealing, and cheating in business is fact versus fiction? Well, there's always more layers to the onion, right? Right. Certainly a lot of lying and cheating starts innocently, but that's to my point of what I usually tell my kids. It's like, if you don't do the little things right and with rigor and and ethics, they're going to a case to be to get redemption, to come clean, so to speak. Never too late to come clean on on a decision that maybe in hindsight wasn't the right one or or was downright unethical. I think our modern press is looking for the I gotcha kind of uh, caught red-handed. There's usually some more layers and texture to that, and I think everybody deserves the right to come clean and be truthful. You mentioned trying to be a good father. How would your advice change to a new employee that's starting at your firm tomorrow? Wouldn't change at all. A company is essentially a family in in a real way. It's a business family. Sometimes you're spending more time with your business family than your biological family. I see no real difference. There's uh, roles for leaders to be mentors and leaders by example. I don't really see a fundamental difference. What advice would you have to someone who comes to you and says they're about to be a whistleblower? First, I'd say thank you uh, for displaying this courage, but I would say absolutely do the right thing, go for it. There, uh, it may not be immediately apparent, but there are many more people that support doing the right thing and coming forth than maybe the few that would be uh, revengeful. That is healthy because of, for example, whistleblowers now sure. have the foundation in place to have an impact when things are going wrong. John, thank you. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. John Loder, managing partner of New Harbor Financial and Mad River Associates and a former Enron employee who's trying to permanently do the right thing with his clients, business partners, and children. John, back to you. Thanks, Greg. Still to come, a college professor who teaches ethics when the language of business continues. Our sponsor is Boston University Questrom School of Business. In partnership with EDX, BU Questrom School of Business is offering an online MBA. It's a top-tier business education available to learners around the world. It's a two-year program with a tuition of $24,000, far more affordable than typical on-campus programs. Interested? Get full details at bu.edu slash questrom. You're listening to the Language of Business podcast, looking at ethics in business. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Aristotle might make for some good weekend reading, but is it applicable in business anymore? We're here with Cabrina Chang at the Boston University Questrom School of Business. and Welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you for having me. Do you use Aristotle anymore in your ethics classes? <laughs> A little. <laughs> right. It's hard to engage business students with Aristotle or Kant or Rawls. And I'm a lawyer. I'm not a philosopher. So I don't even want to get very deep into that. But it's important for students to understand really very broadly what they stand for because it, it does give a nice alternative 
alternative framework for when you're thinking about making a decision. It gives you other perspectives to use when you're trying to make a decision, so it's helpful. But it's it's. Um, it's not the hallmark of your syllabus. It is not the hallmark of my syllabus. <laughs> How do you then teach ethics in the year 2019? In addition to giving a very broad sort of sweep of Aristotle, Kant, Rawls, we really talk more about the context in which people make decisions. And so, as you know, there's a lot of really great behavioral ethics research out there that tells us that in certain types of situations, people make certain types of bad decisions. And the important part is, well, there are a couple of important parts. One, even starting with the premise that everyone wants to do the right thing, and despite you wanting to do the right thing, there are times in life where different pressures will challenge us, and we might not even see that we're making a wrong decision until after the fact when we realize we've done something that we never thought we would ever do. But does everybody want to do the right thing? This segment is focused on why people lie and cheat in yeah, business. Yeah. I have a lot of guests lined up. Right. <laughs> so I like to think that people do want to do the right thing. The problem I have found is that there are several, I don't know what they're called, several, I guess, contexts in which people operate where their judgment might be clouded, like, as we were saying, the rules don't apply to me, or everyone around here is doing it, or I'll just do it this once and then I'll make it up later. You could imagine if you work in an office where the culture is to cut corners and bend rules, people's standard of ethical conduct is lowered. It doesn't mean that it's ethical, you know, everyone is doing it, doesn't mean it's the right, right thing to do, but it makes it easier for people to accept that it's sort of standard procedure when in fact it is. What is the most common ethical breach you see in business these days? I was asking some friends of mine a little unscientific data gathering, you know, my own personal network, that there still is the very sort of unglamorous sort of standard expense report padding and low level fraud that costs companies lots and lots of money, but also is part, contributes to that culture of everyone's doing it, so how could it be wrong? And those kinds of things don't make the headlines. They're not sort of flashy headline grabbers, but they're realistic and they happen all the time. And it's, it's a very costly thing for businesses. Do people ever think they're going to get caught? I was thinking about this. I think on some level they do, that it's only a matter of time, like the Harvey Weinsteins of the world or the Les Moonveses of the world or, you know, whatever. Sometimes I would think that people surrounding them think it's only a matter of time. But by and large, no. My experience has shown me, especially those who work in offices where, like at Wells Fargo, where, you know, your boss is telling you, this is what you have to do. You have to open these accounts, even though your customers don't know about it and you don't have their consent. In atmospheres like that, where it is standard procedure to cut corners and to bend rules, I, I don't think people do expect that they're gonna get caught. Do they ever express contrition after the facts? Okay, so this is, right. Oftentimes they do, right? We see it. We see it in newspapers. In order to get off or because well, they really are sorry. Right? So who knows? Right. My attitude has always been for expression, you know, apologies and we're going to do things differently. Talk is cheap. Even from a lawyer, talk is cheap. <laughs> it's important to see what they do after the fact. That's where I think the real meaning is. For example, the president of MIT. He said last week in The Globe that this is a day of reckoning for him and for MIT and things were done badly and we're going to change. And that's great to hear. 
but we need to see those changes. You can't, you can't really judge in a press release or a news conference, you can't really judge the authenticity of that apology until you give it time to see, are they really making these changes? Sometimes we've seen this with Google, we've seen this at Microsoft, Facebook, Wayfair. Sometimes it's their own employees that are holding them to their apologies. It's not just sort of the public at large. Right. But the employees are demanding that companies live by the mission statement and the value statement that they have espoused to their employees. The employees want to hold them accountable for that. What single piece of advice would you have to students these days about ethics, and would that change to people in your network peer group? <laughs> I don't think it would change. I don't think it would change. I think a single piece of advice is hard, but it's very difficult and very brave and courageous to stand up and not just stand up when you, or to say no to sort of the status quo. So if the status quo is charging your dry cleaning on your expense, actually, which could be an expense, but padding your <laughs> expense, if that's, if that's the status quo, it takes a courageous person to stand up to that. And having that courage to stand up is really the beginning. We've seen, if you just look at the, the newspapers, so many ethical scandals that have been in the newspapers, you know, they never happen in a vacuum. There are people around them enabling. And so assuming students and my personal network of friends, they're those people that see it and could be in a position to interrupt it, having the courage to do that is, is really a very brave thing. And that's sort of the advice that I would have is to, is to try and be that courageous person that tries to interrupt the behavior that they see. Professor Chang, thank you very much. You're very welcome, thank you. Professor Cabrino Chang from the Boston University Questrom School of Business. Doc, back to you. Thanks, Greg. And that's our podcast this week. Our sponsor is Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. And if you subscribe and give us a rating, it would be a huge help. Or just tell a couple of people. We now have downloads in 62 countries. The latest is Nepal and 34 states plus D.C. and five provinces. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of Excellent Writers. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, audio editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.